Are we live? This is Red Power. Hey, we're live. This is Red Power Hour back. Back and better with all the cool shit and the bullshit here today. Talking about hair. We're going to be talking a lot about hair in today's episode. Why washing your hair is an Indian tradition that something settlers could learn from us. It's part of our indigenous knowledge base, learning how to take showers, yeah. bathing. That's how we get our Indian names. Whether or not you wash your legs. <laughs> oh, yeah, going to have to talk about why why white men don't wash their legs today. Is that important? It is. Yes. Why wouldn't you wash your legs? I don't know. It's worse. It's not just your legs. Yeah. I thought it was like, oh, do they just let like the soapy water run down their legs? It's not just, it's like the entire bottom half of the body past the waist. It's like this weird. I know some dudes don't do the ass. Yeah. I don't even, I don't don't know. (laughs) Wash your butt, man. (laughs) Seriously. One of the principal barriers to assimilation seems to be the natural tendency of white people to violence. They love violence. They love it as entertainment. The very foundation of their way of life. Death and sacrifice. White people, with almost missionary zeal, have done their best to export death and sacrifice to every corner of the world. So this is a preview <laughs> of the in-depth radical political analysis we're going to today, marking the 30th anniversary of the release of our favorite movie to hate, Dances with Wolves. That's what we're talking about on Red Power Hour. Uh, but before we get into that, we have a new co-host for Red Power Hour. We have Elena, who's calling in from Ogapoge. So I'm Melanie, good. calling in from Tiwa Territory. <laughs> In your chones. I usually don't wear shirts. But at least you shower beforehand, you know? Do you wash your legs? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> what am I Ew. Just rub my eye and call it a day. <laughs> <laughs> Just rub your body down with sage. Pure tradition. Not that sacred. That's Nick talking about not washing his legs, which is gross. Also calling in from Tiwa Territory. Uh, Nick is co-host of the Red Nation podcast, if you don't know. Uh, and we also have Zikato calling in from Anishinaabe Aking. Uh, Zikato, yay! Zikato's on Red Power Hour, so we're happy to see hey. you. Hey. <laughs> uh, but before we get started, just wanted to remind everyone that we have Patreon um, and to encourage you to support our Patreon. So a few changes we've made recently to Patreon. We were formerly listed under the Red Nation podcast, but you can now find us at our new name, which is called Red Media. Uh, So why did we change our Patreon name to Red Media? So Red Media is a new project we launched. It's a press and a media project run entirely for and by Indigenous people. Uh, We produce writing and work according to our own intellectual traditions, like washing your legs and washing your hair, not those (laughs) imposed upon us by settler culture, which is dirty, savage. We believe in Indigenous abundance and aim to inspire, caretake, and hold space for Indigenous writers by providing them a platform they may not otherwise have. 
Uh, Red Media publishes a wide range of work, including poetry, photography, indigenous botany, uh, academic publications, indigenous language resources, creative writing, children's books, edited collections, and a whole lot more. And our mission is to nourish, sustain, and build indigenous movements that not only protect life on a planet on the verge of ecological collapse, but also provides models for a future premised on justice. We operate according to four principles. Indigenous is a way, indigenousness is a way of relating by any media necessary. We are not a minority and kill the capitalist in your head as well as Lieutenant Dunbar. Okay. Our <laughs> podcasts are now officially part of red media too. Um, just like the podcast you're listening to, they feature interviews, talks, and short audio documentaries about politics, culture, and history from an indigenous left perspective and Red Power Hour is rejoining the Red Nation podcast as a special series hosted by me and Red Power Hour regular Elena Ortiz. And then the Red Nation podcast has a new co-host too. I'm sure you've been listening to it recently. Jennifer Marley, another Red Nation comrade, has joined Nick Estes on the Red Nation podcast main feed. Ooh, ooh. And I also wanted to announce that we are publishing our very first book as Red Media. It comes out on April 20th. It's called The Red Deal which a bunch of Indians wrote over the last two years in the Red Nation, uh, comes out on 420. That was on purpose. And it is a political program for liberation that emerges from the oldest class struggle in in the Americas, the fight by Native people for sovereignty, autonomy, and dignity. So stay tuned for more info on the official launch event, which is going to be happening on Earth Day. It's appropriate. Native people are one with nature on Thursday, April 22nd. And please keep up with all of our social media uh, for more info about the Red Deal, about Red Media, and about all of our Red Deal-related events, which are going to be unfolding for the next few months. A little bit more to announce before we crack into it. Our Red Nation podcast family family is continuing, too. Um, So we recently invited Indigenous-produced podcasts to become affiliated under a larger Indigenous media umbrella with Red Media. So Bands of Turtle Island, which is Zitkato's podcast, has joined the Red Nation podcast family. Bands of Turtle Island is a podcast for Indigenous people by Indigenous people, aiming to give a platform to the oppressed. And we have one other podcast in our family, Decolonized Buffalo, which is a decolonial theory podcast created to build solidarity within our communities by sharing political ideals, art, and stories. And don't forget, East is a podcast, which is hosted by our friend and comrade Sina Romani, who helps us with all of our podcast production. So make sure to check all of these out. You can find links to them on our website, www.therednation.org. And lastly, The Red Nation is going to launch another spinoff series called Native Reads. It's going to be huge, which is a series featuring indigenous writers. Huge. Using my Trump hands. Huge. Which is a series featuring indigenous. Sorry. Oh, too soon. Too soon. My little baby Trump hands. Uh, Sorry. Native Reads. (laughs) What was that? (laughs) Yes. Uh, What was I talking about? Oh, yeah. Native Reads has nothing to do with Trump. So we're going to launch another podcast series called Native Reads, which is a series featuring Indigenous writers interviewing other Indigenous writers. But we need to reach our goal of 2,000 patrons before we can do this. We're currently at almost 1,400 patrons. We're at 1,393. We really want to thank everyone who's joined since our last Red Power Hour recording, which was two months ago. We'll talk a little bit about that in a sec. And just to let you know, we use our Patreon funds for more than just producing our podcasts. You know, your Patreon subscriptions support mutual aid on Pine Ridge, community fees for unsheltered relatives in Albuquerque, and now building red media and trying to find places for Indigenous people to publish their kick-ass work. So again, please consider supporting us today. You can find out more info about our podcasts 
by emailing us at rednationpodcast at gmail.com. And of course, for more info about The Red Nation, you can visit the website, www.therednation.org. And again, we changed our name on Patreon. It's no longer The Red Nation Podcast. It's Red Media. So look us up there. So I'm going to nope. hand it over to Elena to talk for just a few minutes about what? Oh, uh, just I just want to add one thing about the Patreon. If you want to uh, get a copy of The Red Deal, the best way to do so and to ensure you get the you know the, the copy right away is to subscribe to the Patreon. And at a $25 a month level, you will get a, an advanced copy. We'll send it out to you uh, before the, uh, the, the April 20th, the 420 release date. So that's the best way to support. Um, that's the best way to get the book. That's the best way to support Red Media. Uh, there's also others, uh, other tiers. If you want to donate a copy, you can subscribe up to $50 a month. And again, you can do this one-time subscription uh, and then lower, you know, later on, lower it to a dollar, dollar a month, however you feel. Um, so yeah, just I just wanted to throw that out there. That's the best way to get the book. That's the best way to support Red Media. That's the best way to support Red Power Hour. That's the best way to support Decolonize Buffalo, the Red Nation podcast, and Bands of Turtle Island. And the Red Nation. Whoop, whoop. Yeah, we'll uh, drop the link to that, to the Patreon, as well as to where the Red Deal is being sold in the podcast description when we release the show, which I believe is happening in three days on Monday, the 29th. So make sure to be on the lookout for it. Thanks for reminding us about that, Nick. Thanks for being Indian man with a microphone (laughs) in that moment. So uh, as you may have noticed, uh, Red Power Hour has been off the air for a couple of months. And there's a reason for that. So I'm going to pass it over to Elena to talk a little bit about that. We're also revamping the show, taking a slightly different direction. So yeah, Elena, why don't you take that over and talk a little bit about that before we get into, uh, you know, trashing Dances with Wolves. (laughs) Thank you, Dr. Mel. So we have been on a two-month break, a little hiatus to recharge our batteries. Um, You will notice that um, Nicolas, Lou, and Joseph are no longer part of the podcast. But we welcome Zicato and Nick as guests to the podcast today. Myself, Elena, and Melanie are the new co-hosts. We will have revolving guests from the Red Nation from now on to join us. Um, The podcast will be 100% Indigenous. Yay! Red Power Hour is now a sub-series of the Red Nation podcast, again, and not its own standalone podcast. We will be releasing episodes on the main feed every two weeks on Mondays. Worshti is no longer part of the TRN, um, the Red Nation podcast family. And Red Power Hour has come back with a new and sharper focus. So we will be alternating between analyzing major news stories and diving deep into the rabbit hole that is popular culture, which is what we're doing today. It will all be from an indigenous left perspective. We'll be doing a news episode two weeks from now, and then, wait for it, drumroll, Godzilla v. Kong in a month. Yeah. King Kong. Choose your team. Godzilla. 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 You can tell there's... there's get a remix of this going. I feel like we need like a dubstep overlay now. (laughs) There's a... Do some fist pumping to it. Very gendered teams here right now. True. Wow. Wow. What? Drop that. And in general, the Red Nation is split down the middle. Giant monkey yeah, men like the giant monkey. Wow. 
And wow. did you just call us giant monkey men? <laughs> you actually. That was awesome. <laughs> yeah. Well, to be fair, have you seen? I mean, I, I like I six foot and up is just giant, or? Yeah. <laughs> wow. Oh my god! The people from the tiny, the tiny nations are calling you tiny monkey people. Because <laughs> <laughs> we are bigfoot. <laughs> you have to get a lizard. And the sophisticated, the sophisticated, um, very scholarly women are, of course, much more inclined wow. to support. Zillow. Whoa. The shit talking has already started. You can look forward to a lot more of it. Comrade Godzilla. I would say. I'm actually going to be a centrist here, and uh, it's going to be Mecha Godzilla. Yes. <laughs> I'm going to be a. I'm going to be a libertarian. <laughs> I don't know what that means, uh, but. Mothra. <laughs> Mothra. Mothra doesn't Mothra. even appear in the movie. <laughs> Who is like the biggest adversary which was what was the name of that monster in godzilla oh, king of monsters that had like three dragon name. heads he's the best what was that dude's him. name king of monsters i'm that's i'm that dude yep that's it that's it <laughs> well i'm gonna tell you like dinosaur and lakota is like gila tonka or something like that no it's um well, it depends on who you ask. It's like Unchegila is one. Like there were actual Unchegila uh, is one I've heard too. Yeah, Unchegila Unteji. Unteji is the the water monster that lives in the Missouri River, also known as the Black Snake. Um, but yeah, like dun, dun, dun. yeah, we dun, actually dun, do have dun. dinosaurs. Our people when they came out of caves. Well, like we found bones out in the badlands. <laughs> I'm sure that's true. They say there Back in the day, of, dinosaurs. There were piles <laughs> of shit this high we, because we walked amongst the <laughs> dinosaurs. I'm sorry. We I'm, used to I'm, be astro- <laughs> astronauts. Yeah. The Flintstones was a documentary. <laughs> it sounds like something like my uncle would say to me while we were eating. You just got to fill your mouth with cotton balls, and that's how you talk. <laughs> yeah. You do your All right. super, super so authentic Indian voice. It's Okay, in King of Monsters, it's Godzilla. And Mothra versus King Jidora. I don't know if I said that correctly, but Ghidorah, Jidora. Jidora, the Ghidorah. explorer, is going to wreck. Ghidorah, <laughs> <you. laughs> <No. Ghidorah>, the explorer. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that was officially the cringiest thing today. <laughs> it's going to get worse. We're talking about dances with wolves. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just loosening Too myself true. up for this conversation. <laughs> okay, we're getting ahead of ourselves. We need to save all of this this fire about Godzilla versus Kong for our next Red Power Hour episode. It's going to be epic. I bet you like 20 people are going to want to join <laughs> our head nation in the conversation because we have such strong feelings about this. We're having a viewing party, all with vaccinated comrades, by the way, so don't worry. And uh, yeah, we're going to be throwing down pretty hard. Might have to make it a two or a three parter. Just saying. It's probably better that it's we're doing be it super. virtually and not in person because I might actually result in a fist fight. I'm like not joking. Yeah, I know. We're going to get heated. I don't want to brawl with my comrades. Nay. It's going to be the Trotskyist split of the century over Kong v. Godzilla. <laughs> Kong and Godzilla. It's going to be the Trotskyist split. <laughs> 
So wow. who's the Trotskyist, though? Huh? <laughs> we'll find out. Calm, 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 calm. I'm just going deep Godzilla lore, but King Kong wins <laughs> in the previous one. Damn, Godzilla lore? Okay, I'm going to have to up my game. I'll write it down. <laughs> I watch too much Godzilla. <laughs> I love Godzilla. Dude, our comrade Kylie went all the way back to like the OG Godzilla yeah. from like the 30s or whatever. Yeah, it's freaking great. Well, it's right after the uh, Hiroshima, like 50s or something like that. Late 40s. So Godzilla's representative of imperialism, basically. I'm telling you, our comrade Kylie's going to be the final boss in this conversation. Kylie's going to know it all. This is true. All right, well. I'm thinking about this. I got to get prepared. You better prepare. Better prepare. Better do some independent research. That's right. I'm going to do some independent research. Dude. Speaking about today's podcast, all of us like watched this damn movie. We yeah, spent three hours of our time watching Dances with Wolves. I watched it twice. What? <laughs> Why? What's wrong with you? To double check. <laughs> <laughs> to get your facts straight. I wanted to make sure I understood all the cringes. I timestamped stuff where I thought they should have done funnier things. <laughs> wow. Okay. Okay. We're taking a deep ass dive. He watched the extended cut, the director's yeah, cut. Yeah, 15 hours long. You went out and you found a VHS. <laughs> and then you found a VCR. Actually, I do have a VCR. I don't have any VHS. Of course before. you do. But I, yeah, You're like half I mean, the age of the rest of us, but you have a VCR. I grew up on all that stuff. I don't know. Res life. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Dude, oh God, let's just talk God. about this shit then. Are you ready? Are you ready? Okay. <sighs> Shake it off. Okay, are you ready? Okay. Just here that you've been decorated, and they sent you here to be posted. Actually, sir, I'm here at my own request. Why? I've always wanted to see the frontier. Do you want to see the frontier? Yes, sir. Before it's gone. There ain't nothing here, Lieutenant. Everybody's run off or got killed. What about Indians? Dances with Wolves. I actually don't want to call the movie by its title anymore because that would mean that the whole movie is about the white dude and like, like which is the least cool is the least cool part of the entire movie. The Indians are by far the coolest part of this entire movie. I didn't watch this movie in like 25 years. So it was like fascinating to watch it again at this time in my life. But this is what we're talking about today. And again, the reason why we're talking about it, actually Cena, (laughs) Cena was the one I was like, you guys got to do a breakdown of this movie. Because it was released in November of 1990, right? So we like kind of missed the exact 30-year mark because we didn't do an episode a few few months ago about it, but that's what we're doing now. And then it was released on VHS in August of 1991. So we're like right in the middle, right? Of like when it was released in the the theaters and then when it was released on video. So I feel like, you know, we're good. We're good with our timing. But yeah, 30 years later, what do we think of this movie? Was there an indigenous left critique at the time of this film? And if not, let's create one today. So uh, I'm going to hand it over to our Lakota comrades <laughs> to comment first, since it is about your people. And uh, it's probably like much more insulting than it is for me or Elena. 
Well, it's definitely a, a mood. <laughs> yeah, let's let's do like just an overview of the film so that people know what we're talking about. Um, this is written and directed. Really? Yeah. Well, I was just gonna give a breakdown. Like, okay, this is written and directed by Kevin Costner, who at the time claimed to be Cherokee, which is really fascinating. He's not Cherokee, and you know, he's like getting in touch with his indigenous roots. Um, he's the most famous Cherokee you've never heard of, right? Um, it's very easy to, for people to trivialize what we do sometimes, and they do it in ways of saying, well, if it's such a big deal, how come nobody remembers who la last year won the Oscar? And I've got a real flash for you. Um, um, I will never forget what happened here tonight. My family will never forget what happened here. My Native American brothers and sisters across the country, especially the Dakota Sioux, will never forget. People I went to school with will never forget. <laughs> Dances with Wolves won this year, and while it's not as important as the rest of the world situation where it sits, it will always be important to us, and we thank you for this. But so yeah, he was he was getting in touch with his indigenous roots. My Native American brothers and sisters across the country, especially the Dakota Sioux. And you know, he came out. I mean, it's literally the premise of the Postman. I don't know if you've ever seen that. It's the, the premise of Waterworld, which is actually a really good movie. It's actually better than this movie, because. Um, you shut up. <laughs> Waterworld. Waterworld is the best it's movie like, ever made. Like the and worst I will back movie Nick up ever on that. made. It's, it's so good. The smokers. The smokers. Um, As somebody who lives by a bunch of water, I always like to imagine that it'll become a useful skill exactly. to be able to navigate. You have to just grow gills and you because that's what he does. He evolves. He's like literally, he's like, he evolves. You know, he like not only goes Indian, he goes fish. <laughs> <laughs> he goes fish. <laughs> All right, so let me let me just give a breakdown of this movie. Everyone, every native actor from the '90s is in this movie, minus Gary Farmer. I don't know why Gary Farmer isn't in this movie. It's, it would be like a Irene Bedard is also not in this movie. Oh, that's true. But Russell Means famous? isn't in this movie. Yeah, she should have been. It's also true. It, Russell, Russell Means, Means isn't in this movie. You're missing like the <laughs> Russell Means was booked up. He was too busy doing Pocahontas at the time. <laughs> Um, <clears throat> Ooh. Uh, I was going to say fear and loathing. Last <laughs> to the Mohicans. Um, so yeah, it's it's about this. Uh, 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 what, what's his name? Lieutenant Dunbar, John John Dunbar, the whitest name in history. He is a Civil War veteran who decides to go to the frontier. He is subsequently, you know, curious, like the curious. He's like a, basically a Boy Scout on the frontier. It's like what every it's every Boy Scout's wet dream. And actually, if you listen to the script itself, it actually sounds like it was written by a white boy, like a white child, because the fantasies are really absurd and the the language is just awful. Um, the other thing, I mean, because like there's this whole scene where he's like watching Tantu Cardinal and Graham Greene have sex, and I'm just like, he's just like sitting there looking. He's like, oh yeah, it's just. And there's, it, it was like it was like three oh. minutes of him watching them have sex, and I'm like, dude. Like, <laughs> get a room. Look away. Uh, anyways, so he, he goes to the frontier. Take a bath and don't watch that. <laughs> yeah. He goes to the frontier, uh, and he, he's quoted as saying, you know, to this weird dude who ends up peeing himself and shooting himself in the head, 
um, when he gets stationed out there, he's he he tells this guy Kevin Costner says, "I've always wanted to see the frontier. Do you want to see the frontier? Yes, sir. Before it's gone." So a little foregrounding and foreshadowing that like the disappearing Indian trope and that he's there to like witness. He's like literally an anthropologist. He writes down the whole, his whole like inner monologue is him writing down things in this journal that he's keeping his little red book, you know, um, that he's keeping. He's really into cottage core. Um, he's, uh, he, he goes into, <laughs> he, uh, inhabits yep. the transported house. right out of Brooklyn. Yeah. He's literally, yep. he's literally a hipster, a white hipster from Brooklyn. It's got the suspenders. Yeah. Jack Kerouac <laughs> on the road, but on the frontier. <laughs> he smells as bad. He's, he's obviously rich. Like there's a class element that nobody talks about in this movie uh, because none of the other white people, none of the other soldiers can read. Right. So he's the only guy that can read. Um, so he's he's an officer as well, and so you know he's probably for, he's like probably some rich white boy from the north. This is happening in the context of the Civil War, <clears throat> which is completely eighteen sixty three. I think is when the film takes place, right? And yeah. I'll have I have something to say about that year and like what's what the what the the U.S. Army is actually doing to indigenous people because it's like it's like the year uh, the year before the Sand Creek Massacre, but it's also the same year and the same time period when the U.S. Cavalry actually massacred 400 uh, Lakota and Dakota people at the Whitestone Hill Massacre that September. But all of this is kind of like, you know, like it's it's in the background. There's no conflict out here except for the Indians themselves who are fighting each other. Um, he talks a lot about um, making... So, oh, sorry, I got ahead of myself. So he's he's trying to find the Indians in the buffalo, right? And he's like going around. He's out there by himself. You know, um, doing what men do, white guys do out in the woods. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, he um, looking like a dumbass. Yeah, he's looking Dun-dun-dun. like a dumbass. <laughs> you know, like everyone in the film, and Melanie probably has a lot to say about this. None of the white people in the film shower ever. Like they don't bathe. They're all really disgusting. The guy he like, you know, drives his wagon train. They out shit there. in the pond that they drink out of. <laughs> They threw like dead deer in their drinking water. Like it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Stands goes, with fist doesn't brush her hair. Yeah. What's her real name? Uh, Dude, her name is Christine. Yeah, her Christine. Don't use that name. Yeah, I couldn't remember. <laughs> I couldn't just, remember the real name though. It's John and Christine. She's like the the archetype for Karen. Yeah, she's <laughs> yeah, there you go. I should have just called her Karen. She's, she's a, called Karen. That's what I'll remember. She's a Corindian. Corindian? What? What is Elizabeth Warren? War- Warren? No. <laughs> is Elizabeth Warren a Carindian? No. Well, is I it? guess they have the same. They have a similar haircut. Like Elizabeth Warren doesn't look like she brushes or washes her hair. I don't know. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> Elizabeth, I want to see Elizabeth Warren on the campaign trail just come out of a teepee, just completely disheveled. Um, Typical. <clears throat> I've been fasting. So, so he's he goes out there and he's trying to find the Indians, right? And he can't find any of the Indians. And then eventually, one of them tries to steal his horse, and that's how he finds the Indians. Uh, you know, I'll cut to the chase. He becomes adopted by the the, the Lakota people who take the, take him in. They give him an Indian name. They call him Shigmani to Tonka Ob Wachi, which means dances with wolves. 
Um, and then he, uh, like, he becomes native. He, and then he goes out on a war party, or he doesn't go out on a war party. He helps defend the tribe against West Studi. Poor West Studi. West Studi doesn't even get a name. He doesn't even get a Pawnee name. You know, so we we were just calling him Magua because in the cat in the character list, his name is Toughest Pawnee. <laughs> Toughest Pawnee. Just kind of cool. Up. But. But Magua was right in this film. Like, he's like, fuck settlers. And so he begins to kill settlers. And he's like, also, fuck people who, who uh, you know, acquiesce to settlers. And that's why he goes after the Lakotas. But historically speaking, it was kind of the other way around. Um, but we can get into that later. Um, oh, shit. So then he begins to, he begins to make but medicine. But have some Lakota Pawnee standoff here. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, Dunbar begins to make medicine with stands with fist who is a uh, whose real name is christine she's a white girl who's adopted her settler she's actually laura ingles wilder what really would have happened to laura ingles wilder if her family was killed by a bunch of marauding pawnees and then things kind of go sour for dunbar um because his old company he goes back the lakota tribe that he's with is going to go out and camp in the, the black hills and so he needs to get his ethnographic book because he's been taking all of his notes in this book that he's been writing. And he left it at his the fort, which is called Fort Sedgwick, I think. And so he goes back and there's like the cavalry is there and then they beat the shit out of him and they treat him like an Indian. It's like the only time um, Kevin Costner in his entire life has felt oppressed. Um, so there's like a little bit of projection here, right? He's, he's the real victim. And so they beat him up. They tell him he's a dirty old Indian, even though he's just like, the biggest white guy in the world. He looks like bon, John Bon Jovi by this point in the movie. Um, <laughs> he doesn't brush his hair either. Uh, he looks like John Mellencamp. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or like Rufio from Hook. <laughs> Rufio. <laughs> That's really what it is. It's like, it's like. A, I wish he dyed his hair. Because <laughs> he looks like a, it's like literally like, it's like Peter Pan in the Lost Boys. It's like, Anyways, the, the cavalry guys beat him up and they're like, take us to your leader. And then, you know, he's like, he's like, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a real Indian now and I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to give up my people, you know? Um, and there's no, there's no ever talk about like where John Dunbar comes from. He's just like this man that walks out of history who doesn't, you know, the myths of history, who doesn't have any white family or whatever, you know, we don't know anything about him. He doesn't even talk about his past, right? And so he's like, he's literally just like, uh, you know, carte blanche or tabla rasa, like white guy, like, cause all white people, you know, are universal subjects and they're just waiting to be imprinted on. And so we can actually imprint indigeneity on them too. So in the course of seven- Imp- Imprinted, like, <laughs> like, uh, that vampire movie. Um, what the fuck is it called? Dude, it's also about white people and Indians. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Oh, uh. What in, what in- Imprinting the vamp, the the Edward Cullen, the Bella. Spawn. Oh, Twilight. Oh, Twilight. Twilight. I was like, wait, what vampire movie has? I'm so sorry. That was Twilight, a shitty intervention God. that those just fell Indians. flat. Those are werewolves. <laughs> no, they're their own tribe. Werewolves. It's, it's like J.K. Rowling level writing. Well, yeah. I mean, although God, there's this whole weird sexual element to this. I don't even I, that we must talk about. Yeah, we have to talk about it. Now that you brought up the J.K. Rowling thing, because I watched one, watched one of those things. I don't, I don't know what they're called, the Twilights or whatever. And like, it was the weirdest like thing in the world because it, it was all just about sex. It was about 
teen sex, which is really weird to me. The fact that it's this whole franchise is is, an, is is bizarre. And the fact that it was written by this really wild-ass Mormon woman is also really bizarre. Um, so anyways, Dunbar is captured by his own people, right? He's taken or he's a, he's, he's a prisoner, right? He's a, he's a victim throughout this entire period, right? The reason why he goes to the frontier is because he tries to kill himself. And he's not successful. He like, rides in front of a firing line of Confederate soldiers and holds his arms out. He doesn't have any guns and he's like i'm jesus christ and i will kill myself for the sake of the union and then they don't kill him and then the union soldiers like you know um surprise attack this confederate soldiers so he's a failed suicide attempt and then he gets promoted like every white guy he like literally like fails upwards and so they promote him and they send him off to the frontier he gets to choose where he wants to go to the frontier so in this case the idiot gets captured by his own men and then, you know, like after being like brought into the tribe, Mary stands with fists. He, he gets captured by his own men over some stupid paper. Like he literally like jeopardizes the safety of the people that have taken him in after, mind you, like only six months. He's only been with these people for six months, but he's become a better Lakota than them. He's married into them. He speaks fluent Lakota, right? Like he's like, you know, master Lakota, master Dude, Lakota of the universe. So, all right, let me wrap this up real quick. So then the Lakotas come and rescue him. They save him. They save his white ass who made the dumb decision to go get captured by the Union soldiers again. Luckily, none of them die. Uh, You know, Smiles a lot almost got killed. But anyways, they take him out there and to the Black Hills. And then, like, he's like, I can't be with you anymore because I'm white and I'm in my feelings. And so he's like, I must go out this alone. And then, you know. He like leaves the tribe because he feels like he's going to jeopardize their safety further. Um, so he leaves the tribe with stands with a fist, and then at the end, you know the the um, the wolf howls at the moon, and everyone lives happily ever after. And then there's the epilogue of the movie to say that everyone gets all the Lakota people get killed and get put onto reservations. The end. So that's that's the movie in a in a nutshell. Chimani to taco wachi. Yeah, you forgot that part. You gotta, you gotta say it. No, but okay, Nick. I wanted to ask what you think about this. I thought with the whole suicide mission at the beginning that they were trying to draw parallels between the uh, running the line. Oh, you mean like crazy? What Crazy Horse used to do? Yeah, like running the line. Yeah, I think that's yeah. what they were trying to draw parallels yeah. to, to be like, oh, he was always in deer. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, I mean, he was like the, he was the fearless white man, right? He was one, he was, he wasn't one of his own, so he had to be adopted. When I see him, I see medicine. That's what, uh, yeah. Uh, what's the kicking bird says? Right. Oh, he does say that. Yeah, when I see him, I see medicine. Somebody we can make treaties with. Yeah. It's like, oh, okay, white savior. <laughs> That's what okay. I do want to. I just, I, I do want to point out that at this time, in 1863, it was the year after the 1862 U.S. Dakota War. There was like literally during this time, like when this film took place historically, um, there was a General Sibley and Sully were leading what they had called columns of vengeance to kill, literally wipe out all of the Dakota and Lakota people who may have had something to do with the Dakota uprising in like in and around the Missouri river um, at this time period. So the forts that were stationed there were actively 
killing Lakota and Dakota people. They weren't like just out there like getting adopted and marrying white Lakota people. Yeah, this is also the year before uh, Kit Carson, right, did the death march of Navajo people to um, Fort Sumner or Hoyle And so it's really bizarre to know what's happening at this time um, in history with U.S. settler colonialism and like genocidal campaigns, primarily military campaigns. Settler vigilantes were also murdering Native people on the so-called frontier as well. But you have this like weird, I think the movie, so he says he shows up in April of 1863. And then I think the movie ends maybe like at the end-ish of 1863. It's like snowing and shit. It's probably like the end of December or whatever. So what, it's like an eight-month period, seven or eight-month period and somehow he manages to like live this like idyllic romantic life with this band of Lakota people um, without any interference from like settlers or from like the military. Meanwhile, like what's happening around them is like all of these native people are just getting fucking massacred <laughs> and genocided. And so it's like, and it's bizarre because it focuses on the dude. It focuses on the white dude and his like journey into finding himself, finding his like stupid humanity and his settler soul. And it completely ignores like history right? It completely ignores like what native people are actually experiencing as like a population, as nations being genocided by a fucking imperial aggressor called the United States that this fucking white dude represents. He's probably like what, 30 years old or something in this film. And then he gets, he becomes native for like about four months of his life. And then he just leaves it. He just walks away with like Christine, you know, at the end of the like movie. Mary and so Joseph. It's like, cool. So you get to be native for like four months, but you just get to be like a fucking white settler on behalf of U.S. empire for all of the previous years and then all of the years after this. Makes me mad that he learns fluent Lakota in like eight months. Yeah, what an asshole. It's not even eight <laughs> months. Isn't he like at that mud fort for like two months or whatever before he actually really Something starts like communicating that. with them? And I'm like, man, like actual native people can't even learn our language. <laughs> fast he's, he's like, like oh yeah i'm gonna learn it in a couple months give or take yeah dude easy, yeah easy. yeah i'm just gonna marry in just gonna get an eagle feather by doing nothing he also there's a lot of scenes and he's not like doing anything he's just sitting around camp yeah, people are working. and like children <laughs> children are working he's just like or even like christine through. is like gathering water at the river and he's just sitting there talking to her and i was like what did you do to earn that feather and you're like shaggy hair in <laughs> your mullet, man. Yeah, he's a really good dude. Yeah, he's just a really good, good dude. dude. <laughs> yeah. Nobody knows about the Lakota tradition of the really good dude. That's right. <laughs> he probably was a really. It's reserved high for school. white people. No, no, no. He was probably really good at, at basketball when he was in high school, so he doesn't have to do anything. <laughs> he's sewing all of those shirts. He's he's center. <laughs> oh my god. Well, yeah, I guess he's like the one redeeming quality is that he's the cleanest white person in the movie. Sort of. Like f- by far. He's got a sick mullet. Well, let's let's talk about that. <laughs> let's talk about hygiene cuz that seemed to be, you know, there was John Dunbar who was the main character and playing second fiddle was settler hygiene. So <laughs> <laughs> Let's ask Melanie about that because Melanie <laughs> Melanie's apparently wrote a dissertation on it in the time that we watched it. <laughs> yeah, um, like um, Zikato, when you were doing timestamps of various parts in the movie where you thought it could have been funnier, or what were you, what were you saying more? Oh, like thirty-seven minutes and thirty seconds in, he sees the wolf for the first time, ah. and he did not dance. <laughs> he should have danced. It would have been way better. <laughs> 
Yeah, you're right. Make the it would just even more cringy, make it even worse. It'd be great. Well, I didn't do timestamps, although I could probably remember them off the top of my head. Every time a settler did something really dirty and disgusting, I recorded it <laughs> in my red book. In my, I did ethnographic field notes of settler behavior, um, and as as portrayed in this movie, because it must be true. So the first one, right, is like the hospital scene that opens the film. Is like vastly, it's like extremely foot. unsanitary. <laughs> and then when the the guy he meets at Fort Hayes as he's making his way out to Fort Sedgwick, the guy who ends up shooting himself in the head, he's just like drunk and sweating, clearly hasn't showered in a very long time, and then proceeds to piss himself like while he's sitting in a chair and then he kills himself. And I'm like, why are you peeing yourself? And then he has the audacity to call Indians wild and hostile in that conversation with Kevin Costner. And then he just pees himself. He's like, yeah, he's like, yeah, him. Pete him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Pete him. And there's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> and then the why guy. Why did he do that? I don't understand why he's like, is he like, <laughs> well, he was also like, what does he have that's making him insane? Also and like he's just like, I'm going to piss myself. Call this guy a knight. Call myself yeah. the king and send him out on a journey. It was like a Monty Python, like Holy Grail scene or something like that. It was like <laughs> almost. It was yeah. Like, bro, do you know what movie you're in? <laughs> Who directed this? That's what I was saying. That's why I was like, this this script was like literally written by like a child. Like <laughs> the child's like, I love I love kings and castles and knights. This is like what Indian in the cupboard, like when he was playing with the toy Indian. This is what the, the story was in his head. Dances with Wolves. Damn. That's meta. <laughs> meta. <laughs> so you have a high-ranking officer who has poor hygiene. And then Kevin Costner gets into a wagon with a quote-unquote peasant. That's what that officer called the guy. Um, what was that guy's name? Timmins. Tibbin? Timmins. Timmins. Huh? Timmins. Timmins. And Timmins is disgusting. Like, you can... You can tell Timmins doesn't clean himself. The way he eats, he's just like spitting food out of his mouth. He's just nasty. He's like got a bunch of flies around him. And I don't think it's because he's a quote unquote peasant. Like, I don't have those kind of class politics. I think it's just because he's white. He's a dude. <laughs> just nasty. And so then they show up at Fort Sedgwick. And like, you just think, right? It's like these like quote unquote like advanced civilization, like settler society. All they could muster was fucking mud, a mud hut. <laughs> and then you go like 20 miles away and there's this like incredibly advanced like Lakota like you know camp (laughs) it's like beautiful and well made and can stand up to the weather and like he finds out that the people who were there before him like the the soldiers were living in caves (laughs) side of a hill they just like completely trashed out their own camp and was like throwing trash in the clean water supply <laughs> they're supposed to drink out of and it's like, like the dead deer like the what dead the deer and i'm just like wow and then you know he stumbles upon christine cutting herself i don't think that that's a real practice i think she meant to cut her hair and she accidentally slipped and cut her arm <laughs> you know and she was mourning the loss of her husband or whatever doing it wrong but, when you, you know you come in the wrong <laughs> doing <way>. it wrong <laughs> and shit it's like wipe it off dude but uh, she like hasn't brushed her hair in a century you know and then there's even like scenes after that with her 
where she's like crying or something and her face is so dirty. You can see like the streaks, like where the tears have fallen is the only clean part on her skin, on her face. I could go on. You want me to go on? (laughs) Well, I want to know why when he brings her to the tribe, the dude just like rips her out of his arm and like starts dragging her across. By her hair. By is it by her hair? I thought it was her arm, but well, maybe like, if she had brushed that, that hair and kept it neater. He wouldn't have been able to grab it like that. Well, no, okay. she she like you know like the traditional Lakota way is you cut your hair, but being the white person that she is and being the better Indian that she is, she layered it in a ninety style. Not only did she cut her hair, she made it layered. <laughs> out there at that tree when he first found her she was giving herself a feather yeah. a feather detail yeah. it was it was like a, a multi-level mullet descending it's a waterfall she's it's like cascading. this is <laughs> cascading mullet layers of layers. party in the dude because he had like when his hair was growing longer as the movie progressed he also had cas- a cascading mullet that's true that's Did, layers of culture the right mullet there. the choice and I was like, reminds me of like the Star Wars mullets in the prequels, actually. Yeah, he was Obi Wan. Yeah, Luke Skywalker had it. Yeah, cascading mullets. I was like, what's that feather attached to? Like, dude, you don't have enough hair. Like, how's that staying a in there? <laughs> a prayer. <laughs> medicine. A it's medicine. medicine, Nick. They're making medicine. Gross. But yeah, those are some profoundly dirty moments and then when you see like the the new soldiers when he goes back to find his ethnographic his field book back at the mud hut there are like two of them are like shitting in the pond <laughs> and he i think he had to like just cleaned his face because <laughs> yeah, they beat the face. crap out of him he was bleeding he was washing his face and then the camera pans out and then it pans to the other side of the pond and these two soldiers are just like shitting and wiping themselves with pages from his ethnographic field notes. That right there, two white settler men who are soldiers for the U.S. cavalry shitting in their own source of water and sustenance. Meanwhile, another white man who has become Indian is washing his face in that same water and this is happening on the frontier and they're wiping their asses with his ethnographic field notes that right there describes the United States. When was toilet paper invented, though? <laughs> Maybe they they were onto something. I don't know, but Indians probably point. invented that shit because we have excellent hygiene. <laughs> it's definitely not white people who invented toilet paper because they don't wash their legs. So, just real quickly, I knew where a lot of those places, uh, those film locations, are at. I was kind of weird to see all that stuff going on, like. The river, uh, there's a place called, oh, geez, I can't even remember. But there's like a, you know, South Dakota doesn't have a lot going for it. Um, So um, it creates tourist traps. And one of the tourist traps is you get to actually see um, these locations. I can't remember what it's called, though. But there's like dinosaurs and then there's Dances with Wolves. Um, So if anyone is out on I-90, it's somewhere between Wall Drug and Murdo. Um, that there's this like little stop that you can go. It's like a front. It's called the 1880 town. Even though this film Nick, happened, should we take a pit stop there? Probably. When we're out there. Probably better. <laughs> Probably better do that. That should become a new Patreon tier. Yeah. Paid round trip ticket to the 1880 1880 town. town. <laughs> Get syphilis. Start a party. Athlete's foot. <laughs> <laughs> Shit. 
shit in a pond. You too could piss yourself. Like <laughs> you too could piss yourself. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, all right. So we've covered the uh, the hygiene, the second character in the film, but <laughs> I the stepchild. Yeah. Well, the re- part of the reason why we also did this episode is because Elena, you know, wrote a master's thesis on this film. So she's an expert. And so I do want to turn it over. To well, actually, I, I didn't do it for hygiene um, because, frankly, it didn't occur to me back in 1991 to talk about hygiene. I was more concerned with things like miscegenation, which is a common theme in Westerns. And um, particularly John Wayne Westerns, where John Wayne will kill any white woman who's been kidnapped by Native people because, of course, if they're, God forbid, they have sex and actually like it, then they are forever tainted and must be killed. So that was a pretty common theme in John Wayne Westerns. We see the same thing in Dances with Woofs. Um, if John had not met Christine, uh, would he have actually been welcomed into the tribe and given a wife? Um, Christine, on the other hand, did have a Lakota husband, but he was conveniently killed. So we don't have the problem of the child, which would not have been acceptable to Hollywood audiences. Um, I guess the main thing I focused on when I was writing about this was just the idea of, and and everyone has touched on it, the idea of of the the white savior and the white guy becoming the better Indian than the Indians, and as a way of dealing with guilt, with white guilt about the um, founding of this country. And Melanie actually also brought something up, which I thought was interesting because I hadn't thought about it, but. Uh, this film came out right before the Columbus quincentenary. So you had um, celebrations all around the country um, uh, about the founding of America by Europeans and uh, particularly with Christopher Columbus. And this film comes out pretty much about a year and a half before that. So that was really um, an interesting time, a reckoning in the so-called United States of whether or not European colonization should be celebrated or whether it shouldn't be celebrated. So um, this film basically, it, it actually was celebrated in this country by so many people. It won so many Academy Awards and it was heralded as sort of a new, a new way of um, creating a Western with sympathetic native characters but really nothing changed except they created a series of good characters, the good Indians, the Lakota, left to the bad Indians, Magua and the Pawnee, but nothing really changed. The gaze or, or whose eyes you see the action happening, it's all the white guy. It's all the white guy. There's no understanding of how the Lakota people were feeling during this. All you see them as caricatures. And they're the same caricatures as you see in every Western you have the noble 
um, medicine man or holy man or spiritual Indian. And then you have the warrior Indian and then you have the wise woman and actually Tantu Cardinal did an amazing job. And, and I wish we had seen more of her. And like Melanie said, I wish we had just seen more of the, the native people through, um, through the whole movie and gotten rid of, of, uh, um, all of the, the white characters, the awful dirty ones and John and Christine, um, but the, the idea that in Westerns prior to Dances with Wolves, you saw the Indians as savage. All Indians were savage. There were no sympathetic Native characters. And with this one, all of the Native characters became sympathetic. So you simply inverted those tired stereotypes. Um, and it signaled a shift in this country where American Americans we're now seeing themselves as idealized versions of native people and um, feeling the, um, those virtues had been lost. The frontier was gone and they were trying to reclaim this by becoming better Indians than the Indians. And you see that with John and Christine, as they adopted Lakota ways, they became better Lakotas. Um, but then they didn't have the blood to worry about. So they walked away from that village ostensibly to save their families, to save those people, but, but literally walked away and left them to be massacred by the army. And like Mary and Joseph departing to find a place to have their little baby savior, they left that that camp and left them all to be to be massacred, which is literally what happened. And we were talking earlier about um, they actually, uh, Michael Mann, who wrote this book and originally wrote it about the Comanches, based the character of Christine on Cynthia Parker, Cynthia Ann Parker, who was liberated by the Comanches and ultimately became the mother of Quanah Parker. Um, that's who that character was based on. And there was another book written, um, which I actually have not read, uh, but there was a sequel to Dances with Woofs um, that was called The Holy Road, in which they don't leave and they have a bunch of kids and you see one of their children actually becoming or on the road, that's why they call it the Holy Road, to being the Messiah, the savior of Native people. So it's very sick. Wow. Is John Collier's biography. (laughs) (laughs) And they gave birth. I keep hearing uh, Redbone. (laughs) (laughs) You know the song Wovoka by Mm -hmm. Redbone? That's what plays in my head when I think about this book. Cue the music, Cena. Um, yeah, no, I I agree with like all of those things. Like I there's this like weird perverted logic like it's more than just like the white savior, it's actually becoming Indian. Like it's like look how easy it is for white people to become Indian. And not only is it easy for white people to become Indian, but it doesn't work the other way around like Indians just get killed, right? That's the only thing we can do. That's the only logical conclusion to all of this. And I think we actually, I was thinking about this when we started this podcast and I was, I've been listening. This is literally the same story of Lawrence of Arabia. Avatar. The same story of Avatar. Yeah. Avatar. That was, that was going to be my next suggestion is to, we should actually watch Avatar. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm down. So this, this film. Oh my God. 
It's the same story. I mean, Lawrence of South Dakota dances with wolves, and then the the blue dances with wolves. It's it's the same story over and over again, and it it just it 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 brings up this whole larger dynamic of primitivism, which is is become so somehow so appealing to white people, this idea of going back and having the same virtues um, as they want to go back in their history and go back to the land and return to the land. But what they're not seeing, right. But what they're not seeing is that, (laughs) is that they're the ones who destroyed the land and they're the ones who pillaged and they're the ones who murdered and they're the ones who raped and they're the ones who destroyed. They want to go back and be the Indians that they destroyed. So John yeah, Dunbar what, uh, is an anarcho-primitivist, is what you're saying. <laughs> yes. Dunbar is the original Ted Kaczynski. Yeah, yeah. Damn. This is true. It's that uh, it's what Native scholars call the settler move to innocence that is so quintessential to like U.S. nationalism. Yeah, for sure. And also, you know what you said, Elena, um, that even though the stereotype was just flipped on its head so that like native people are all of a sudden sympathetic characters rather than like the constant villain or whatever. I mean, Indians are still a villain in this movie. It's like poor Magua, you know, poor West duty. The toughest Pawnee is still a villain, but that, that flip of like the, the status of Indians and pop culture is still very much plays into the fact that the film is called dances with wolves. I'm sure the book is called dances with wolves. And da- who is Dances with Wolves in the movie? It's fucking yeah. John. It's John Dunbar. The movie should have been called John or something like that. John's Journey. <laughs> John's Journey. To John's Mars. Journey. But, you know, like, John's, John. John's Junk. John's, John's Junk. <laughs> Sorry. But it's it's literally, again, right? That like every time Native people are in TV or film or represented at all in mainstream pop culture in the United States, we're like just props, right? We're just like the thing, the other, the other, or the object that is there for like the white settler protagonist to find themselves or to find their humanity. And isn't there a line like two thirds of the way through the film where um, John says, "As I heard my Sioux name called over and over, I finally realized who I really yep. was." And then Kicking Bird, a little bit later on, um, is talking to John, and he says um, that. What he sees, no, this is at the end of the the film, isn't it? When he gives him the chanupa or whatever, as he and Christine are leaving that camp, he's like, I see before me the trail of a good human being, right? And so it's like the white settler gets to return to innocence and gets to become a human being again by playing Indian. Because of course, settler colonialism is like a structure of profound inhumanity, right? It's a structure that's premised entirely on violence. And so- how can you reclaim any type of humanity if you're participating it's, in that kind of it's project? Settler nostalgia. It's always the native. It's yeah. yep, it's nostalgia. That's what it was. It was nostalgia, because right, what was actually going on historically at that time was just like crazy ass genociding, just the US military, just like de- destroying entire communities and nations of indigenous people, slaughtering babies and women and children. That's actually what was going on in 1863. And it's right. Yeah. And so instead. You have this like fictional account of the encounter between a white man and a and Indians, you know, at this moment. And it's like, who cares? Like, just remove John and Christine from the entire movie. And what I enjoyed was seeing like the actual material culture of Lakota mm-hmm. people and hearing the language. That's what I enjoyed most in that film. That was actually really cool. Subsistence. And the horse. A lot more Red Crow. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Floyd Westman Red Crow. 
but the the horse work was really cool uh in the buffalo hunting season uh hunting scene i've always wondered how like we did do that like i i'm not a very good horse rider i grew up around horses i really disliked riding horses my legs were so long one time i was riding a spanish pony and he turned around and bit my leg and pulled me off the side of his <laughs> that's how Fucking that's awful <laughs> yeah I, I don't really like horses. I like horses can be real assholes. Yeah, they, they can. I like I like horses. But that I thought that was cool. I also like the language, you know, like the fact that they use Lakota language. It was the majority of the film. And, you know, the other thing, too, is that you could actually just made a film about Lakota people with these these native actors. And I would have watched it and it yeah. would have been awesome. So, like, why did they waste the time on doing a three hour epic about some white guy who was like, you know, looking down his pants the entire time. That's literally what it was. Like it was, it was so annoying. Um, he was like, "Oh, what do I have down here?" Oh, um, it was. You know, like the acting itself was, you know, really incredible. I think it was one of the first times. You know, the in the film industry that they used uh, a, a native language in a respectful way because oftentimes, you know, the westerns would have, you know, the kind of ooga booga. Uh, stereotypes of, of Lakota or Dakota or, you know, indigenous people um, just making up languages, you know, but it was still like, it was still like a Lone Ranger and Tonto kind of scenario. And it didn't like, I think Tonto's cooler, you know, than the Lone Ranger. It's like the famous saying, you know, always goes, it's like when the Lone Ranger and Tonto are surrounded and, you know, the Lone <laughs> Ranger turns to Tonto and says, Hey, uh, Tanto, we're surrounded, and he's like, "What do you mean, we Kimosabe?" <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's the way I felt about this film. It was like, first of all, Kevin Costner is a horrible actor. I don't know, like, I don't, have you ever seen him in a film? He just literally, he's just like, it looks like somebody. Yeah, he's jacket. terrible. Yeah, it looks like he's on. I mean, he literally looks like he's doped up the entire time. He doesn't. He doesn't even have Botox in his face, so he doesn't. He's very monotone. He doesn't he's actually a terrible like, human being too. I mean, after yeah. after this after this movie, well, first first off, like I also heard from a number of people who worked on that film that the native actors were treated very badly, and that you know after it was over, after projecting or presenting this image to the world, um, that he was somehow sympathetic or empathetic or wanted to elevate indigenous culture. Um, he turns around and buys a fucking casino in Deadwood, um, which is, is, you know, first of all, it's, it's on, on Lakota land and in, in, in um, it is one of the, one of the worst most awful um, places that was settler towns, whatever you call it. It's just a God awful place um, and promotes, you know, settler worst behavior, gambling and drinking and, and, and um, you know, all of that. And the sex it, trade is huge there too. Yep. So he buys this casino in this, this place, which to me shows absolute disrespect to Lakota people. And then, the other thing that that just blew my mind is you, you mentioned like being able to observe um, people speaking the language and um, the the culture. They hired a white woman to make all those outfits, and she won a fucking Academy Award for it. And then, of course, she yeah. What? And then she moved to Santa Fe. 
and started selling those outfits to all of, of the. She moved to Santa of Fe. course, she did to to sell all those outfits to white women so they could wear them during Indian markets. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, Kathy Smith is her name. That's the fucking most settler name ever. Yep. Smith. It couldn't have been worse. Oh, Nick. Oh, I shot. I shot him. Oh. I think I killed him. <laughs> dead. Ned. Dead. He's gonna go find the lady now in Santa Fe. I'm still here. Holy shit! I didn't know that. That's disturbing. Yeah. Yeah, you used you used Makes to be able to go stuff. downtown to her shop and like buy something that looked like Christine's wedding costume. What? Well, the it's f- all very monotone. Like I, every time I see traditional, like I used to have like regal and fucking white dude stole it while we were out on vacation or something like that. Fucking broke into our house, but like it's always bright, <sighs> vibrant, has a bunch of colors in it. Like it's never just like all buckskin and like tan bead, brown bead. You know, like if you look at the chest plates that like uh, he trades for the jacket, it's just a very dull, boring, like looks like something some kid would make in arts and crafts because his teacher wants to teach about indigenous people's day. Like that's the feeling I get off of it. Yeah, that's true. Like, I think there is a big misconception. Like, even if you look at. Yeah, I think the best line I heard after that Kathy Smith won an Academy Award and Costner, of course, won two for whatever. Um, and someone, and Graham Greene was actually nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Of course, he didn't win. And somebody interviewed him and asked him, well, what did you think of the Academy Award? Or what, no, what did you think of Dances with Wolves? And he said, eh, the Indian character was good. He should have won an award. Which is like the way I felt about the movie. Graham yeah. Greene said that? That's awesome. <laughs> that is pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, like now that I think of it, it's just like a total like ode to Kevin Costner's narcissism. Because yep. the whole story is just about him. And then he made it in real life. He won all of these awards. And then he just made it about himself even more. And then even claiming to be Cherokee, it's like, oh my God. That like the liberal individualism of that partic- that kind of like settler identity. Yeah. That's literally all that film was about. Yep. Yeah. And it really didn't it didn't change anything from from previous westerns. I mean, it really didn't. If you look at it, the same the same um, issues. Uh, in, in, and I don't think people talk enough about the issue of miscegenation in old westerns and the idea of how horrifying it was that that white women would have sex with native men and God forbid, you know, get pregnant. But you almost to see that in this movie, you and and we laugh about, of course he found a white woman. And of course it makes sense that they get together because they're both white, but it's not just that that it makes sense. It's that there was such a fear of miscegenation in this culture that, um, and even in, in 1990, you saw that on film. And so nothing has really changed since the searchers, since John Wayne and the searchers. And it, you know, we'll have to kill her because she's had sex with Indian men. It's, it's, kind of mind-blowing but it's also a typical war movie well and actually related um you're totally right elena related to the like the narrative around miscegenation that's really central to the way that native people are portrayed like 
in popular culture, but also like there's a long history of American literature of captivity narratives. There are some really um, amazing Native scholars who've written about how central the captivity narrative, and it's usually a white woman who's captured by like the hostile enemy Indians. Um, And then, you know, like various things happen to that particular figure, but that that character of the white captive, the white woman captive of Indians is like so central to like the narrative of settler nationalism that's written into the entire cultural archive of literature, film, right? Television. Um, And it just plays out over and over and over again. I think Audra Simpson wrote a really good piece about a decade ago on um, a really famous white woman captivity narrative thing. I'll actually try to find it and maybe include the link in the show description. But again, it's, it's just like native people are the mirror for settlers right yeah. to like work out their weird shit yep <laughs> on stolen land <laughs> a lot of times yes <laughs> always the interactions anytime they're interested in anything about my culture it's always oh so like what about <laughs> it's like can you fucking not you hippie <laughs> yeah but it's just a bunch of goddamn hippies mm-hmm. man it literally you- it, like i feel like it, i feel like it's so nixodian saying that <laughs> No, hippies really are a problem sometimes. <laughs> like, there's a huge hip, like, aren't the like, uh, white sage is becoming like extinct because white hippies are fucking harvesting too much and fucking using it to sage, and it's like it's a closed practice, you fucking assholes. Wait, white sage is becoming extinct because of like hippies well, and like the, the yeah, kids like, at they're Sephora. Like, yeah, what? there's like a huge freaking thing. Like, basically, like uh, where it's grown indigenously is like the only places you can still find it sort of abundantly and even then people still come in now and they what the heck i didn't know oh, that yeah. because <laughs> it's a huge brooklyn thing to go out and forage for your own herbs and shit now so fucking people are like going out there and just like not replanting just taking it's a really fucked yeah. up situation that's that makes that actually is very heartbreaking to me well, that's what I mean. Like, that's why, like, I tell people, it's like, if you're going to do, like, cedar's a little more open of a practice, as I understand. If you're going to fucking start co-opting indigenous cultures, please just don't, like, extinct the medicine. That's all I want. <laughs> like, I'm not asking for white people to stop being hippies. <laughs> just say don't make stuff go extinct. I am asking you to stop being fucking hippies. <laughs> I am. <laughs> Knock well, see, that I shit off. Like, I feel like... Y- they don't, they're not willing to give anything sometimes. It's just like, <laughs> it's, so you, it's too big of an ask sometimes, and it's not a big ask ever. It's always just like, hey, can you respect the treaties you forced us to sign? No. <laughs> Sorry. That's too much. <laughs> can you not kidnap our children? Nah, no, 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 no. We got other plans. You know, this reminds this film and like our conversation right now reminds me to, you know, I have um, formal academic training in the field of history. And a lot of what counts as like U.S. history is American Indian history, which means very different things, right? There's like indigenous historiography, which is like histories written by indigenous people. Oftentimes oral histories are constituted a, a large part of the archive of what would count as indigenous history. But there's this entire other industry in the academy of writing like Indian history or like new Indian history. And most of those historians are white. Most of them are men. Um, and it's called new Indian history. And it usually focuses on the period of like colonial and early American history. So it would be like the period, right. That this film 
is supposed to occur in the 1860s or even before that. And there's this like framework and this trope that these historians have developed and they just keep reproducing it over and over again in all these award-winning books where they self-congratulate themselves. It's like middle ground or like the contact zone or like the, the clash of cultures kind of trope that you see. And so it's like Indians and settlers coming together and then creating like a new kind of culture or like creating new identities or new whatever, man, out of like the the coming together of these two forces or whatever. It's even gone so far as that like Pekka Hamalayanen, who's like a white, I think he's Finnish, maybe he's Swedish, um, has written on the Comanches and the Lakotas, but he calls them both empires. And so he interprets it as like two empires clashing and coming together. Um, and all of these historians have pushed back very heavily against genocide as an appropriate term to describe the colonization of indigenous people, um, particularly by the United States, right? Saying that like, we weren't victims, we had agency, see, we were empires. Like we had so much power that we were empires and we really gave the US a run for its money. But the whole thing, and that like this movie completely plays into is that after a certain point in fucking history that happens about five years after this movie takes place, guess what happens? Native people are completely moved off of their land into reservations. The United States does, in fact, get to move westward. The frontier does, in fact, come to a close because the U.S., as like a violent imperial colonial project, actually succeeds in many ways, right? In usurping the land, in violating treaties, in genociding and killing off huge numbers of Native people. And so... This film just makes me so sad. You end the movie, like, I'm not sad because I don't give a fuck what happened to John and Christine in this movie, right? I'm just thinking about the native people and like how the how the cavalry is essentially hunting them down to kill them by the end of this movie. And it's like the whole movie, which centers on this white guy finding his humanity, it's like the whole backdrop, right? The whole point of the movie being told is that the Indians are a vanishing race and are just going to die anyway, And so this whole, like, there's this whole industry in, like, not just pop culture, but also in, quote, unquote, academic knowledge production that is about white people talking about their encounter with Indians. But the end of that story always, always, always is, like, dead Indians or, like, stolen land or, like, how, like, the U.S. won whatever imperial war it had against Indians. And so Indians just lose. It's just a story of loss for Native people. Of course, all Westerns are like this. And particularly, but it's yeah. just so like fucked up. Even on the postscript after the movie, it says um, the last band of free Sioux submit. And this is this is also cringe, cringe. The last band of free Sioux submitted to white authority. They said, like whites had any authority, and all this does is is um, reinforces the racial hierarchies. Um, and the primary work of all of these Westerns is to um, is to regenerate the idea of white superiority, whether it's a white playing an Indian or the whites genociding the Indians. It's all about um, racial hierarchies and um, white superiority and power dynamics. And it's the same thing in this movie. And, you know, how could you create something with the the care that they did with the Lakota language and, and um, all of that, and then say, but they all submitted to white authority. Like the whites were the authorities all along. I mean, that also made me completely insane. Yeah, I think what Melanie brought up is incredibly important because it's not just some kind of fantastical narrative 
that you know only exists in the film industry but it's you know like i think uh, elena brought up too earlier about how this is kind of at the the quincentennial of columbus's voyage and in 1992 um the celebration of that um but it was also at an era or an an era or a point in time when cultural relativism um you know kind of morphed into neoliberal multicultural politics and then that's when like indigenous people especially like lakota people in this context um are like this is our history as part of the 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 u.s national narrative right we are part of the kind of liberal multicultural fabric of the united states and we um become an anecdote you know to this greater and more powerful history and that's literally what new indian history is it's like you know we're making space for the real the quote-unquote real nation to take place right um and that's something that like you know pekka heimelainen is literally john dunbar pekka heimelainen is dances with wolves he is the guy who's trying to quote-unquote go native right and this is like where i think indigenous studies and Native American studies is incredibly important and where it has been completely usurped by the neoliberal multicultural project. Um, Because instead of taking indigenous people and indigenous nations on their own terms with their own histories, their own values, their own ways of knowing the world, it literally grafts them onto the tree or the trunk that is quote unquote, the United States. And to move away from quote unquote cultural relativism, right? It moves towards imperialistic relativism that all cultures and all, you know, societies uh, and groups of human individuals tend towards imperialism, right? And so had had the US not been imperialistic and genocided the world, the indigenous people would have done it because that's the natural kind of evolution of all human societies. So it doesn't really make what the United States did to indigenous peoples wrong because it was inevitable. It was going to happen one way or the other, right? That's why Comanche Empire is a number one bestseller in US history. That's why white men give white men awards in the the field of US history because this is the this is this is what they want to hear. This is the stories that they this is the national stories that they want to tell themselves that if all societies tends, tend towards genocide and imperialist conquest, then it makes the disappearance or the, the, the conquest of those societies much more easier to uh, kind of uh, digest. And, and it, it can't be it called genocide. Right? It makes it easier to live on stolen land. You eliminate culpability. And yeah, it can't be called genocide. Because that removes to innocence. Yeah. Yep. You know, it's, you know, exactly. Nick, I'm glad you brought that up because it was like in the early 90s that new Indian history, this like kind of subfield of US history became super popular. And you started to see like academic presses just being flooded with these book, man- publishing these book manuscripts. And it's around the same time, right, as the quincentenary for Columbus's voyage, the 1492 bullshit. And then, of course, as you point out, Nick, it's like this, the neoliberal multiculturalism kind of narrative where that becomes all of a sudden about inclusion. And so how can we include Native people in the larger kind of narrative of the American melting pot, right? Which is itself at a structural level, like definitely a part of 
like the settler move to innocence, right? So if we can just erase this kind of genocide, if we can erase what happened and create a level playing field amongst all of the races that are part of the American melting, the melting pot, you know, then we don't actually have to account for or be held accountable for genocide or like genocide is actually not a real thing. And so then you have this entire cultural industry like Dances with Wolves and then an entire intellectual industry, right? Going to work on behalf of this like new, and this re- this new interpretation of the United States, right. As this like inclusive place for all races um, and, and all of that bullshit. And so you have movies like this last of the Mohicans, I think came out in 1993 um, kind of participating in that narrative. And then you have all of these like white male historians doing all of this footwork. They're like the foot soldiers for colonialism, right. For colonial erasure at this time too, um, because that became super popular in the early nineties, this particular framework. It's like America is inevitable. Yeah. You lost. And, you know, the the story, I mean, the story of Dunbar 2 is the story of all U.S. war movies. It's the story of us understanding the Indian wars through the eyes of the perpetrator and the eyes of the invader. Much like how we currently understand the wars in Afghanistan and in, in Iraq told through the popular narratives of U.S. veterans, right? The people who are actually the invaders. We don't understand. There's no war films about, you know, the Vietnamese side of Vietnam. There are no war films about the, the Afghani side uh, uh, and, you know, in, in the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan or told from the perspective of Iraqis in, in Iraq. Everything, the war industry, the war film industry, right? That's why Westerns are actually war movies. They're not you know, they're not a, a subgenre um, of, you know, U.S. film. It's actually just war movies. That's that's literally the dominant genre of U.S. film is, is U.S. war movies. That's and that's what this is. It's told we have to humanize mm. indigenous peoples by killing them and becoming them. Ooh. Like dressing in their skins. Ooh. Yeah, that's. Yeah, skinwalkers. <laughs> the real John. skinwalkers. Oh, no, are we going to get into skinwalker Skinny. ranch? <gasps> Dun, dun, dun. Dang. Next next, next time, time on, on Power next Hour. Next time on Yoded. <laughs> well, the thing the right, the thing is that military history is a huge, it's like it's a one of the like mainstays of US history, the larger field of US history. And a lot of what's written on native people is written by military historians for a reason, right? For the exact reason that Nick just said. That like war as like a primary story um of, of US history has everything to do with Indians. And the erasure of Indians, the con- like the continued erasure of Indians that the U.S. needs in order to, you know, continue to exist or legitimize itself. Uh, so good convo, peeps and comrades. I uh, want to close it out by asking you a question. I want to do a roundtable before we end. What for you was the cringiest scene <laughs> in this movie? There's a lot to pick from. Uh, moment. I'm going to go with the scene after, um, I think it was after the, the Buffalo hunt where John is back at Fort Sedgwick and he builds the fire and he dances around the fire. Yes, because dude. I just, it was literally like every cultural appropriation Every um, 
talk about hippies and everybody who wants to be native and who plays native and goes native and does native. That to me was like the, the worst. I couldn't watch it. I had to get up and walk away. <laughs> that is also my, I think, the cringiest scene. That is my absolute, I love when he does this, specifically that part where he goes, <laughs> that's the best part of the entire maneuver. <laughs> I'm going to do that next time I'm at Sundance. <laughs> I think the cringiest scene is when uh, Graham Greene's character first meets Dunbar and doesn't <laughs> kill his ass. Oh, you know, but what's a weird scene too? When he plays dead, and then like he like starts brushing off that little girl, then pats her on the bottom as she wa- like she walks away. That I felt really weird about. Wait, what? Wait. Yeah, he plays dead Wait, right what? after getting fake shot, and then he like pats oh, the little girl yeah, on the bottom, and yeah. it's like, ew. So there's like a yeah. there's like a pedo moment. Actually, uh, uh-huh. like speaking of that, like I actually think the cringiest scene oh, is when they got married. Because we actually don't have, we actually don't have a mar- like a marriage ceremony. It was completely made up. Like we actually didn't have marriage. Like people didn't get married. I mean, there was something akin to being a wife or a partner, but it wasn't like, like when she dressed in white but buckskin. Like that was weird. I was like, oh my god, this is actually like every this is like every settler's like real fantasy is to get like married and to be Indian like. It's, it was a trip, man. Like, and I'll, I'll say this last thing, but when I posted this on Twitter, like I was doing a live tweet of watching the film because I had never like actually sat down and watched it, you know, from beginning to end. Somebody like literally, oh, this is so gross. Somebody literally talked about how they had their first sexual awakening as a young white woman by watching Dances with Wolves because 85% of the characters turned them on. And I was like, what? I was like, keep that in your freaking sick mind. You need to know this, Nick. <laughs> she needs to share this very personal information. I just lost a follower. It's like, why would you put that nope. on Twitter? That's nope. Listen, I think we can all agree oh. that Wind and his hair is a fox in that movie, okay? <laughs> I'm trying to objectify, but like, I don't know, That's native true. people thinking about... <laughs> I agree. <laughs> native people like thinking about like seeing ourselves on film and being like we're pretty good looking. This is nice. You know, we look pretty awesome. That's different than like you objectifying native people. If you did that, keep that shit in your head. Don't share it with any of us. That's some hippie shit. Seriously. Well, we all, we all are sexy sexy savage. savage. um, (laughs) Sexy savage moment here on red power hour. Well, we all need a Vogue for like five minutes. (laughs) What would like an Indian Vogue look like? Just be like butchering a sheep. Feathers. Making fry bread. Just lots of feathers, lots Making of buckskin. Lots of freaking hip. Holding it up next to your face, like, look, it's like the size of my head. Stirring the beans. Stirring the beans. Stirring the beans. Making the dough, picking throwing it sage. down, picking sage. Making medicine. Nay. Making medicine. Wait, so what's uh, your fire scene, scene Melanie? Man scene. <laughs> I love that we all <laughs> Bernie Man is Hands down, you're like, oh, 
And that's funny because none that, of us talked about that either before we started the podcast or during the podcast. We talked about other cringe scenes, but that was the one we all chose. And also him staring at Tantu Cardinal and Graham Greene having sex. That was also really horrific. That's pretty bad. That one was really bad. <laughs> I like that he just turns over, like stares back, and like they just they have this awkward connection for a way too long. Also, <laughs> like, when, why did he just? Yeah, like that. But then also when he like replies to them in Lakota when he gets captured towards the end by the soldiers, and he's like, "I will not speak to you." Like, blah blah blah. I'm just like, shut up, man. <laughs> you a white dude. <laughs> shut, shut up, up bon Jovi. Bon Jovi. <laughs> you ain't an Indian. So that was also super cringeworthy. But it was a cool shirt. I don't know. I, I, I do profoundly disagree with you about the fire scene being the most cringy thing. That is the most awesome scene, by the way, for the record, of the entire film itself. He should have just gotten an Academy Award based on his performance in that scene alone. <laughs> next to Totoko. Oh, Totoko. yeah, that was cringeworthy. <laughs> Pretty much any time I saw that eagle feather in his um, cascading mullet, I also <laughs> I was like I was just pissed off. I had so much rage just seeing that every time. Is this a video? Let's just do like a compilation of cringe. <laughs> like, what image do we choose yeah. for this podcast episode? There's so many. Well, I mean, the Tatanka scene and the fire scene <laughs> actually were my sexual. <laughs> Nick's discovered himself. <laughs> yeah. At the age of the healthy age of 35, I've had my first sexual awakening. A Thank you, Lakota Kevin Costner. Transition there. <laughs> yeah. I'm now, I'm an, now adult. an adult. <laughs> What's your new name? <laughs> Shibata Tutanko Owachi. Oh my God. Shibata Tutanko Owachi. Oh, God. Well, before we sign off, I'm going to hand it over to you, Zinkato, to make a little announcement. And I also just want to remind everyone to go to our Patreon. Again, we have a new Patreon name, Red Media. You can buy The Red Deal, the first book we're publishing through Red Media there, through our Patreon. Um, You can buy a book for somebody else. We have multiple ways that you can get the book and gain more access to bonus content for the podcast. So again, that's patreon.com, Red Media. All right, Zikato, shooting it over to you. So uh, if anybody has listened to Bands of Turtle Island that's listening, you've probably heard our episode with Kieran, and his council never forked over the money that they said they would to also help with the water. So they're continuing their water drive to get more water. Um, so like, if you have extra money, there's a GoFundMe in the like show notes, whatever they're called. Um, and uh, basically what happened was that PFAS chemicals, which are like uh, for putting out fires, basically, uh, but like military grade fires. So like napalm, you know, like they dumped a bunch of that into their water supply. And like, if you should go listen to the episode, Kieran tells this heartbreaking story about like his childhood creek that he used to catch fish in. Uh, Now, like he like found fish that were like dead and like he said he didn't take a picture of it, but supposedly like mutations, you know. So, like, it's a really fucked up situation. They really need help. And, like, you know, like every council, they're not very good at getting help to their people, even over in Australia. So, please help. 